Well, grace and peace to you from our glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We finally had a nice day yesterday. Did everybody enjoy that beautiful day yesterday? Good. I did too. I was able to get a game of golf in. It was not a good score. (laughs) Keeps me humble. (laughs) It was fun though. Hopefully we can get another one of those days. A young boy called the pastor of a local corner church to ask the pastor to come by to pray for his mother who had been very ill with the flu. The pastor knew the family and was aware that they were attending another church down the road. So the pastor asked, shouldn't you be asking Brother Simon down the road to come, uh, to come by to pray with your mom? The young boy replied, yeah, but we didn't want to take the chance that he might catch whatever this is what mom has. <laughs> So we're continuing our series in Ephesians this morning. Last week we looked at the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 1, and we saw that Paul was praising God, was blessing God for the many spiritual blessings that we have all received as believers, that we've received in Christ. But in the second passage, he breaks out into thanksgiving and prayer for believers this time, So we see that chapter 1 is very much a chapter of prayer, beginning with praying to God and then, well, still praying to God, but but directly praising God and, and, and then praying for believers in this second half of the passage. He prays that they would know the firm foundation of their hope, uh, found only in Jesus Christ. And we know that prayer is an essential element to the Christian life, and so is uh, intercessory prayer, which is praying for each other. It's so important as the community of God, uh, as believers in Christ, to be praying for one another. And so we want to turn to our passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue to be in your presence this morning, fill our hearts with joy and peace. 
and love for you. Grant us grace to know, to understand your word. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Come and be in our midst. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We want to see you. Help us, O Lord, to understand the truth. That we would be people who would pursue truth. And that we'd be people who are transformed by that truth, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we see that in the first few, uh, the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 1, he's praising God for the spiritual blessings that we received in Christ. And now he proceeds on to pray that they would truly understand. He's praying for the people that they would understand those spiritual blessings in their own in their own lives. That they would be able to co truly comprehend them. John Stott puts it well, saying, First he blesses God for having blessed us in Christ. Then he prays that God will open our eyes to grasp the fullness of his blessings. So because of the believer's faith in the Lord and their love toward all Christians, Paul gives, th gives thanks for them and prays for them often. He has a thankful heart that there are people who have come to faith in Jesus and that they show it by having a deep love for one another. He prays for them because he's rejoicing for their reception of the gospel. And that's always a joyous occasion when we think about that people have come to faith in Jesus. And we praise God for those people. We lift them up. We say, thank you, Lord, for their that they've come to faith. And, and so we continue to pray for them. It's a, I think Paul is really getting at here that the, the, the Christian life, and I think we know, and I hope we know this, that the Christian life is a process. We haven't reached that end goal. That's something I preached on a few weeks ago in Philippians. We haven't reached that end goal. We need to know more. We need to understand it deeper and deeper and deeper as we go on in this life so that we can understand it, so that our, our, our hope is renewed. But he's rejoicing. He tells them how he prays for them, which really I think he's giving them this blueprint of how to pray for each other. This is how I'm giving thanks for you. This is how I'm praying for you. He prays that God would grant them revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, he prays that God would make himself known to them. That's a good prayer. Would you understand? Would God be made known to you? That, that's what revelation means, being made known. He adds that, he adds in verse 18, he desires that they would understand the hope to which they have been called, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, and to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So a person attains wisdom and revelation of him when the eyes of their hearts are enlightened and they're able to comprehend the hope of the inheritance they have through Christ. So his desire is that their spiritual eyes would be able to see spiritual things, to understand. It's almost a, it's, a, it's, it's being able to understand the dimensions, the, the spiritual dimension. Uh, 
being able to understand that there are things happening in this reality that we cannot see, but are still real, happening in this physical dimension, we cannot see, but are still very much a real thing. And he wants them to understand that. He wants them to know God's, uh, he wants them to know God, he wants them to know the hope that they have, and he wants them to understand that there is a future inheritance. So he wants their eyes to be enlightened, lighten the eyes of your hearts. Essentially, would God turn the light switch on <laughs> so that you could see? What does he mean by see? That you can understand somehow, mysteriously, something that it's hard for me to explain because I think as a Christian, you, you, you just know, you, you sense this hope that you have. You don't see it. I don't see my hope. <laughs> but somehow I do in a spiritual sense. I understand my hope in Jesus Christ. He's saying that would, would Christ, who is the light of the world, would He shine light into your hearts, into your minds, into, your, into that, that part of your being that you can understand the spiritual aspect of your faith? that you'd be able to see. I don't know if Paul had that, that, uh, that, that kind of dichotomy between physical and spirituality, uh, but that's the way I'm thinking about it for us this morning, is being able to really understand that there's these spiritual uh, things going on. And would, would, would Christ, the light of the world, shine light into our minds? That's what Paul is praying. Would they understand their hope? This is what they've been called to. He's saying that they've already been called to this hope. When they received the gospel, we read that here in verse 15. I mean, we go back though in verse 13 where he says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. They were sealed by the Spirit. That's the hope that they were called to. When they, when they, were, when they believed the gospel, they were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this is the hope that they've been called to. It's... it's it happened in the past. That hope you've been called to was in the past, and now we're looking ahead to the future. So would they be under, able to understand that future inheritance, which is what we, which is, uh, which was in verse fourteen uh, of the same chapter, what we looked at last week, of this future inheritance of the redemption of our bodies, the this this hope. The, the hope of future glories. That's really what he wants us to understand here and to comprehend is the future, that there's hope, that our path is set out for us, that history has an end for us as Christians. He wants them to set the eyes of their spiritual minds toward future realities and that they would grasp the truth of these realities. They are coming, in other words. They are coming. These, these truths are going to take place. And would these believers be reminded that they will be fulfilled one day? So this is what's called uh, the beatific vision. The vision of future glory. Beatific means happy, blissful. That, blissful, that, that vision of blissful, joy, uh, joy-filled eternity. That's our vision. 
and 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 what's involved in that beatific vision is is uh, being uh, propelled forward in that vision, going forward, moving ahead in that vision. It's the knowledge, the hope of future realities, the Lord's coming kingdom. As one commentator helpfully notes, Paul wants the hope of their future inheritance in glory to become a firm foundation for them. Would that be what you stand upon in life as a Christian, as a believer, that as you're walking through life, that is what's grounding you as there's things coming your way, there's false teaching coming your way, there's ungodly kingdoms and powers coming your way, there's people who are coming against you, coming your way, there's things that you want to believe, and yet what is that thing that you can stand on when everything else is coming your way is this truth is the truth that you there's hope you're going to receive something there's a future inheritance coming your way so in the midst of whatever's going on in life do not forsake the hope that you have this is what paul is praying for believers do not forsake that hope that you have it's not a wishful kind of thinking it's a firm and secure hope having the assurance that you know Christ is coming back and will make all things new. It's a hope that you know. Because you can say, I hope that we get another sunny day before October. Well, I don't know uh, if that's going to happen. I have hope that Christ is coming back. There's probably 0.99999% of me that's kind of like, well, maybe he won't come back. You know, that's it's 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 still there. I think that's for everybody. Still there, <laughs> but ninety nine point whatever percent of me says, "Yeah, he's coming back." That's my hope. And Paul's prayer is that this truth would be embedded so deep into your heart that nothing can sway you otherwise. So this vision, this beatific vision, this blissful vision is what should compel our living. It's the knowledge that we will reach heavenly realities. This is similar to his thinking in Colossians 3. Actually, as I've been studying this uh, more, uh, Ephesians more, I really see how you could probably put Colossians and Ephesians together and see a lot of the similarities and this morning I was reading this passage again and I was thinking, man, that sounds like Colossians 1. Go and read Colossians 1 later. It's, it's wonderful. It's very much a synthesis of what Paul is saying in all of chapter and all of Ephesians 1. But anyways, he says in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is really a good summation of that beatific vision. It's the anticipation of the return of Christ and being united to him. So in Colossians 3, Paul is exhorting, set your minds above. <laughs> and here in Ephesians, he's praying that would God set our minds 
above? Would God enlighten our minds? Would He help us to understand, to comprehend those truths until the end? I think His first prayer here could be summed up as, Would the Lord help you to understand the hope that you have and the riches of the inheritance that you will receive? Now, the third thing on his list, as we go into verse 19, he prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God. Of God's power, I should say. He prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe according to the working of his great might. And notice his language here. He's saying, immeasurable, great. He's really trying to emphasize, really accentuate, underscore God's power. Immeasurable, great. Immeasurable can be defined as too large, extensive, or extreme to measure. So in other words, God power, God's power is so great that you can't measure it. It's enormous. It's immeasurable. <laughs> so we want to understand that. That he, Paul wants the believers to know. Would you know how great how huge, how humongous God's power is. And it was shown in history. It's not ambiguous. Uh, God's power was shown uh, mightily. On, it was on display mightily, as we see in verse 20. Uh, when Christ was raised from the dead and was seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So God's power has already been in work in history among human beings. First, by raising Christ from the dead, and those who believe in Him somehow participate in that same power. And He wants to know that that resurrection power is at work in all of us. This great power has defeated all of God's enemies in every age and in the age to come. Jesus is far greater than, than any ruler or spiritual force in heaven and on earth. He is king over all kings. In Paul's day and in every generation after, even ours. Jesus is King of Kings even today. And again, somehow as believers, we participate in King Jesus' victory. For Paul prays that we would know the power that the power of God that brought forth Jesus' victory. Let me kind of sum that all up again. That God's power raised Jesus from the dead, reversed death itself and brought him from the grave and seated him above every power and ruler and authority, both spiritual and physical. He is seated above all things. Yesterday, actually, I came across a picture, just randomly, a picture. I thought it was fantastic where Jesus is sitting there on his throne and there's little earth right here. 
And Jesus is like this big in the picture, as big as me in the picture, and there's little earth underneath his feet. I thought that was an, an awesome picture of what Paul is saying here. That the power of God put Christ there in that in that way. <laughs> so then, the question is, how do we know the power of God? And the reason I ask that is, well, first of all, is he is he saying uh, is he talking about knowing it in the future or knowing it in the past? The reason I ask that question is, he's praying two things for them that are future things. He's praying that they would know hope. Well, hope is a, I guess hope is a present thing, but he's praying that they would have hope for the future. So he's really praying about two future things here. So is, is he talking about a third future reality? Is he continuing his line of thought? And does Paul want us to merely have an intellectual comprehension of the power of God or to know the power of God in our own lives? These are, these are things that I've been wrestling with this week. And I think for now I've come to a, to a satisfactory conclusion. As we look at verse 21 we see that uh, Paul writes that King Jesus has been seated far above all rulers and authorities in this age, but also in the age to come. So Paul is articulating that the victory of Christ is in effect in every generation, that he's been seated far above all powers in this age, talking about his age, and the age to come. Really, and I think what he means by his age is the age until Christ comes back, which is the age to come. But we're thinking about this in, in every generation. So this age means that in every generation until Christ comes back, and when Christ comes back, he is king over all kings. So if that's, if that's true, then the power of God is working in every present. In the present that was yesterday, God's power was at work. In the present, that was a hundred years ago, God's power was at work because Christ is still victorious. In tomorrow's present, Christ or God's power will still be at work because Christ will still be victorious. In a hundred years present, God's power will still be at work because Christ will still be victorious. So Christ is victorious in the present and in the future. John Stott's comments are helpful here. He says, if God's call in verse 18 looks back to the beginning and God's inheritance in verse 18 looks on to the end, then surely God's power spans the interim period in between. Further, it is on this that the apostle concentrates, for only God's power can fulfill the expectation which belongs to the, his call and bring us safely to the riches of the glory of the future inheritance. Another commentator notes that this is the power through which we overcome and resist evil forces, which have been made subject to Christ already. So we have Christ's power on our side in the good fight. God is more powerful than anything. And, and that climax of God's manifested power was the resurrection of Jesus. I say the climax because 
All throughout the Old Testament, we saw God's power at work, but never doing what he did through Jesus. That was that, in the Old Testament, it was kind of, this, this is how I'm thinking about it. God's power was kind of coming up like this, and then resurrection, boom, climax. And I mean, it just keeps going up like that. So we can trust that God is powerful and mighty. And Paul's prayer is that you would truly understand that. Would you know God's power in this life, in this present, whenever it may be, in yesterday's present, in today's present, in tomorrow's present? Would you know God's power? And we're going to see God's power even in the future. We're going to see it more and more, more on display uh, when when He returns. Have hope in the God that reversed death itself by raising Jesus from the grave and who will raise our bodies at the end of time, which is part of our inheritance. So one commentator posits that nothing then can stand in the way for the believer to obtain their inheritance of future glory. Further, when we know the excessive greatness of his power, nothing will ever disturb our hope. When we know the enormity, the vastness of his power, nothing can stand in the way of our hope. So this is what our firm foundation is grounded in, is God's power to finish what he has started in us. So he furthers his thought in verse 32, saying that all things have been put under Christ's feet, and God gave him his head over all things to the church. So let's first dwell on the fact that all things have been put under Christ's feet. One commentator notes that just as passages in the Old Testament spoke of God being the king over all kings, over all gods, now this designation has been given to Jesus. In the Old Testament, God was the most high God. Now Jesus, of course, is, is, is fulfilling that image in the Old Testament. Jesus is the supreme king over all kings, over all gods. Now, some translations may point out that this phrase, put all things under his feet, they may say that's a direct quote or an allusion, whatever, they, whatever the, your translation may indicate that. That is a fulfillment of Psalm 8, verse 6, which reads, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. And that that psalm is very much, a, I'll put it this way, it's a commentary of man's original mandate in Genesis 1 and 2. God gave dominion to man he, and, and, and put all things under his feet. So that's what that psalm is talking about, is humanity. But Jesus is the one who's fulfilling it. Jesus' rule is over the whole world, enthroned in heaven. And as N.T. Wright puts it, he is, pardon me, he is fulfilling the divine intention for the human race. Did you catch that? Again, this was the original mandate for human beings to have dominion, to God to give dominion to humanity and for humanity to have all things in submission to themselves. 
to have dominion over the world, and all creatures were to, to, to be in submission to humanity. This was what Adam and Eve were to do. They were to tend the garden and to have all creatures subdued and submit to them. And of course, we see that that's not what happens because a serpent comes in, that talking serpent, we know who uh, that's Satan. And instead of crushing that serpent or saying, get out of here, instead of having it submit to them, they submitted themselves to a creature. And look what happened. It threw all of human race into chaos, into sin. And that could be a whole different other sermon. But speaking to the serpent in Genesis 3, God said, I will put enmity, I will put hostility between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or as other translations will put it, he will crush your head. What I'm trying to get at here is the sense of what's going on in this passage is that Eve's child will eventually put the serpent into subjection under his feet. That the child of Eve will put the child of the serpents, or the, the children of the serpent, uh, under, uh, pardon me, let me start that again. Eve's child will eventually put the serpent into subjection under his feet. And we know that Jesus was that child and he crushed the serpent, crushed the serpent's head by his death and resurrection and thereby disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians 2.15 So the powers of Satan, this is, what, this is what Paul is saying. Would you understand the power that defeated Satan at the cross? And he remains defeated to this day. It's the power of Satan that resides behind ungodly kingdoms. And, and that power has been de facto destroyed. It, it's still rampant. The power of Satan is still at work. But he has been defeated. And he will be completely defeated at the end. He had that... that uh, you know, he, he, he's limping away. That's what happened to him. It's just like in, uh, in World War II, say, I'm, I've not thought of this analogy well, it just came to me, so pardon me. Uh, but thinking about even in World War II, I'm sure that the Allies said we got them. D-Day, D-Day, here we go. There was D-Day. The Allies got into... I'm getting my history mixed up here, but they got into France and they were making their way to Berlin. The Germans weren't defeated yet, but they were, in a sense, at D-Day. It wasn't until Victory Day that they were completely defeated. So that's what we think about here with Satan, that the cross was D-Day and the return of Christ is Victory Day, Victory in Europe Day. And what Paul is saying here, this is also counter-imperial. And what I mean by that is, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Phrase borrowed from N.T. Wright. If Jesus is Lord, 
Justin Trudeau is not. If Jesus is Lord, Scott Moe is not. Whatever it may be, Jesus is supreme Lord. Stand your ground, therefore, against persecution or any other thing that may be in opposition to the hope that you have. Would you be strengthened? That's what Paul is praying. Would you be strengthened in your hope for future glory? Don't lose your hope since Jesus is king. Now, there's a second element here that I want to focus on briefly. He says that Christ has been given his head over all things to the church. Jesus as Lord has been given to us. <laughs> he is our head. He is our Lord. In other words, Christ as king over the world has first been manifested to the church. We are the representatives of the new creation. And actually, Paul's going to talk about this more in this letter where we have both Jews and Gentiles uh, coming together in this congregation, whatever it may be, uh, coming together. People of different ethnicities coming together uh, and, and, and giving praise to God, giving Him praise as King. And that's what it's going to look like in the end when we see everybody who's been redeemed throughout history from every nation and tribe and tongue uh, giving praise to Jesus as King. That's what we see here as, as a church, that Christ is, uh, as King has been manifested to us, first of all. One commentator notes that God has given Christ a great victory over the powers of darkness and now possesses full authority over them for the benefit of the church. I like that. Further, the head of the church is a victorious and powerful Lord. On this basis, Christ can impart to the church all the empowering resources it needs to resist the attacks of powers. So we've been given Christ as head over all things, and that means that really nothing can stand in the way of our hope. The triumphant, victorious Christ has been given to the church as the head. So he is the king of the new community of God who has subdued all other powers beneath him for our benefit as God's new community. And not only is he the head of the new community, he is also the body. We read that in verse 23. Christ is both head and body. And, and, and the body of Christ, that's a common theme for Paul. But here he explains that Christ is also the head. So Christ is the fullness of the church. He fills the church. He is in all of us. And He is our head. There is this wonderful, mysterious participation in Jesus Christ as the church, as individuals, and as the church as a whole. He fills all in all. In verse 23, read, He's not only present in the church, He's present in everything, everywhere. In, along the lines of Colossians 1.17, in Him all things hold together. This is talking about the supremacy of Christ. Christ is supreme over all things. And, we, and we're really thinking about this in, in um, royal terms. And we think about, say, Queen Elizabeth. She's the supreme 
uh, governor of Canada. I'm not sure if that's the official title, but just go along with me, will you? <laughs> uh, but that's the point. She is our supreme governor, supreme uh, magistrate of Canada. So we're really thinking about, you know, she is the one who has ultimate authority, supposedly. And, uh, and that's the same with Jesus. That is very real with Jesus. The church has been given Christ, and since He is supreme over all things, nothing can break the relationship between a believer and the Father. And so while, while Christians may be physically harmed, their spiritual security is secure in the victorious supreme Christ. Death cannot defeat us because the power of God is at work in us. We, we, we may die before Christ returns, but it hasn't defeated us, really, because, it's, because the death has been defeated by Christ. And so that is really, Paul wants us to understand that. This is what our firm foundation of hope is grounded in, is that Jesus Christ is victorious, he is triumphant in every age, and He is the head. He is Lord over all of us. And His great power is at work in us, even defeating death for all of us. Now, I wouldn't blame you if you forgot that this is, that this is still part of Paul's prayer. It seems as though Paul kind of just gets distracted. Uh, you know, he starts writing his prayer, and then, oh, this is, this is some good stuff here, people. Uh, you know, but he's still praying for them. He's praying that they would know this. He, he's, he's praying for them good truth. But let's go backwards to summarize Paul's thinking. Christ feels everything, and He is the fullness of the church, which is His body. He's been given to the church over all things, as head over all things, who has been seated at the right hand of God far above all rulers, authorities, and principalities. He was seated far above all rulers and authorities when he was raised from the dead, which was a display of God's mighty power. And Paul reminds us is also working, is at work among us. And this is the foundation for what comes next. For Paul's prayer is that we would know this power as we grasp the hope of glory and the riches of our future inheritance in Christ. Paul's desire is that the power that made Jesus Lord be made known to us in granting his hope for our future inheritance. And this is the key. The victory of Christ is the firm foundation of our hope. The victory of Christ is the firm foundation for our hope. It may seem like this is something that I've talked about a lot during my time in doing pulpit supply, and it has been. <laughs> this is something that I've been thinking about a lot this year, uh, especially this is it's related to some research and writing I did back in the spring at NBC, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot this summer, especially when COVID hit. It was something that I was really thinking about and thought that Christians really need this renewed hope that Christ is victorious. 
and even thinking about with with everything that's going with civil unrest down south, thinking about that, uh, just the the craziness that's going to happen come November with the American election. I just know that it's going to there's going to be a lot of unrest, whatever happens. And thinking about the victory of Christ in that as well. But I have so I have been talking about it quite a bit. And the reason for that is one of my philosophies in preaching is that, well, first of all, repetition is necessary. It's important. Uh, It really solidifies things in our minds. So when, when we hear things over and over. But the reason that I do that then is that when we're convinced of something in our minds through the Holy Spirit, when we've come to realize, yes, that is the truth, Then, when that happens, our attitudes, uh, the way that we think about things, and our actions will will change, will be transformed as a result of being convinced of something. And so it's important for us to remember that our hope is grounded, that that our firm foundation is that if Jesus wasn't the victorious king, nothing else would matter for us. I mean, that goes back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. If Jesus wasn't risen, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, then we're all fools. But we know that's not the case, that Christ was raised from the dead. And that is showing the victorious Jesus. There are two sides of the coin in the gospel that Jesus came to die for our sins. And that we needed a victorious king. That Jesus is the victorious king. Those are That is the good news. That we have forgiveness of our sins. And that Jesus is king. That, and that is our hope. Many Christians need a renewed hope. Built on the foundation of the knowledge of God's power through Christ. We need to be renewed in our hope. We need a renewed mind. We need the joy that comes from that hope. So what do we do now? Well, it's quite simple, really. (laughs) Pray. This is something that Paul prays for believers. So we should be praying this for... Praying this for... for, Oh my, I'm tongue-tied. We should be praying this for each other as well. We should be praying this for each other. There are various needs, of course. It's so important that we... We know the needs. We lift our, each other's needs up in prayer. But we need to be praying and interceding for each other that each of us would understand the firm foundation of our hope. This is how we come together as that body of Christ in that mysterious way as we're at home by ourselves. We're here at church together and we're praying for each other that we would understand that our hope would be renewed, that we would know and, how, and grasp that firm foundation that the gospel would be renewed in our minds and would strengthen our hope. So pray that we would understand the gospel and our salvation. Pray that we would understand the hope of our future inheritance. Pray that we would understand the victory of Christ and to understand our union with Christ, both as a church and as individuals. Our firm foundation depends on the victorious Christ. 
The victorious Christ is the firm foundation of our hope. Nothing else gives us hope than the death, resurrection, and ascension, and defeat of all powers and rulers. Jesus is King, so pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that you would open our eyes that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us and what are the riches of, the, of, of your glorious inheritance. And would you help us to know the immeasurable greatness of your power to, to those who believe that raised Christ from the dead. He is far above all rulers and you've given him as our Lord. Lord, remind us of the hope we have. Give us the victory. Help us to know the victory and that power that is working in us. Lord, renew our hope. Give us steadfast hearts, minds, and feet to continue to fight the good fight, O Lord. Help us to pray. Help us to pray for each other, O Lord. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.